Was there a time that you looked around and thought, I think I could make it to the C-suite and, and I want to do it? It happens um, a little more slowly. It actually was during the Gillette role that the, the first time I remember the, the guy who was the chief HR officer at Gillette was the first person who ever said, I think you could have my job, meaning the chief job. And honestly, it, it honestly hadn't occurred to me then. Welcome to the Business Class Podcast, where we dive into conversations with alumni, students, faculty, and staff from the University of Dayton School of Business Administration. You'll hear career advice, conversations about ethical decision-making in business, and listen to stories from life on the UD campus. Here's your host, Dean Trevor Collier. Hello, and welcome to the Business Class Podcast. Today, we are joined by 1989 UD School of Business graduate, Tracy Grabowski. Tracy recently retired as Chief Human Resources Officer at Procter & Gamble. Thanks for joining me today, Tracy. I'd like to Thanks start- Thanks for our having con- me. Yeah, really excited. I'd like to start our conversation talking about your, your most recent role at P&G, and then maybe go back to your time at UD and, and follow your career up to the, to the present day. I think most of our listeners have some familiarity with Procter & Gamble. You know, I, I know it pretty well. My wife worked there for about a decade. Could you remind our listeners of some of the more famous brands at P&G and, and maybe tell us something about the company a general audience might not know? Sure. So we make many products that hopefully you have in your home. Uh, things like Tide, Olay, Crest, uh, Gillette, Venus, Always, Bounty, Pampers, uh, many, many more. The company is over 180 years old, um, about $80 billion in revenue, um, more than 100,000 employees around the world. Um, with, and we have on-the-ground operations in more than 70 countries. Um, one thing I think is kind of fun to think about is even though it's a really, really big company now, at first, it was a startup like every other company. And it was actually started by two men who were brothers-in-laws of each other in Cincinnati. Um, and so I, I think it's interesting to think back to the days when it was just the two of them doing their startup, making soap and candles, um, and then thinking about how the company has evolved now. What did your wife work on? My wife has an undergraduate degree in biochemistry, and so she actually started at P&G on the formulation side, doing detergent formulation. And she would interact with people from the business side who were using terminology that she didn't understand. So she went back to get her MBA at Indiana University and then switched over to a role in, in CMK. For those of you that are not PNGers, that stands for Consumer and Market Knowledge, and it's basically doing market research. And so her first role when she switched over was, was also on Tide doing market research. And then her last, her last role was uh, Omnichannel. So, you know, e- e-marketing, she, she was one of the first people helping Amazon understand that when you are selling a toothbrush, that, that's not the same time that you should be advertising for wedding rings. Um, you know, the, the, the algorithm that Amazon uses now is, is way more sophisticated than, uh, than when she started. But yeah, I, I love the way you started the answer to that question when you said we. Uh, my, my wife is 10 years, uh, 10 years out from working at <laughs> P&G. And when I ask her a question about P&G, she still starts it with we. <laughs> yeah, I think it's true. I mean, there's a lot of pride. I think that we feel many people, you know, obviously, some people choose to work there for 
two years or five years. Um, you know, I was there for well over 30 years, closer to 35 years. And uh, you do feel like a part of it. I think that's honestly, I think that's part of the magic of um, the sustainability of the company and the ability to win is people actually care about working there and what we can accomplish together. So kind of fun. Hopefully it's not that unique. Well, I think uh, it's not. I mean, she she still has a lot of friends that she met at PNG, and I think they all they all speak in similar similar language. Um, but I, I think it's I imagine it makes you feel good, uh, given the part of the organization that that you came from. So we we talked about earlier that you you were the chief human resources officer before retiring. I know many people cringe when they hear the phrase human resources. Right? It conjures up images of of a bureaucracy dealing with troubled employees, uh, obviously there's, there's other positives to it. Can, can you share with us some of the parts of the job that you really liked? Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, I, I, it's not the best thing to bring up at a cocktail party when you say you work <laughs> in HR and then people make lots of assumptions about, about what you do, but, but I loved the work that I did. I mean, it, uh, maybe I'll give a couple different examples to illustrate uh, some of the different parts that I liked a lot. One thing is, I think the HR organization, when done well, is really critical to helping the business win. So if you think about, you know, about five or six years ago, when I first came into the chief HR officer role, the company was not performing at its level of capability, and we really needed to reinvent a lot of things. So with the leadership team, a new strategy was developed. And then part of my job, um, working with that team, of course, but bringing my um, organizational expertise is to say, okay, if this is the strategy that we're choosing, what is the organization design that we need to have? Where do we need to change what the decision rights and authorities are? What kind of metrics and accountability and compensation systems do we need so that the words and pictures match up for people? What do we need to change about our culture? Um, in our case, we needed to be um, maybe faster moving, more growth mindset oriented, less centralized, right? So you, you hear people say all these things about we need to be more of this and less of that, but there really is sort of um, a protocol, a technology, whatever you wanna call it to say, how do you build an ecosystem where the organization is really lined up against what the business strategy is trying to do. So I found it really rewarding to be to be able to see the turnaround in the business and know that I had something to do with that. Another part that I really love is leadership development. Um, I mean, I kind of staked my career on this, right? I said, I believe that people are going to make the difference. Um, and we, as a build from within company invest a lot in the development of our people and it it's at all levels right so whether someone's training to be a manager of others for the first time or they're learning to lead an organization or it's the first time working internationally um figuring out what skills and capabilities does that person need and then either you know at a macro level designing you know, experiences and capabilities to help with that or individually doing executive coaching. Uh, it's a really rewarding part of the job. When I when I retired, you know, people say nice things about you when you're retiring. So it's, it's a nice benefit of retiring. But one of the things that meant the most to me was when people say said, 
you helped me grow. I learned something, right? I was, I broadened my skill set. That's really rewarding, that way of thinking about your investing in the next generation of the organization. So sure, sometimes there's, uh, you know, 100,000 people and people, you know, behave in ways that <laughs> you might wish that they wouldn't, but that's not, certainly not the majority of the work. Can we dig in a little bit on, on your first example? And so you, you yeah. talked about a, a change in strategy. Could you tell us a little bit more? What, what was the change in strategy and what did you actually implement in terms of a, a process or a reward system to, to better achieve that? Yeah, well, let me maybe a couple of, of examples again there. So one of the things that we knew that we wanted to do was get more category driven. Right. And so a category at PNG would be something like fabric care or skin care or, you know, baby care, something like that. That's what I mean when I'm talking about a category. And the reason that it was important for us to be oriented in that way versus another choice you could make to say, oh, we're going to be oriented by country, for example, um, is that consumers buy categories, right? You don't, you don't think about, oh, everything I've buy from PNG in the United States, you think about like, what is the detergent that I'm going to buy or what kind of razor am I going to use on my face? So we really wanted to make sure that the company was running in a way that was oriented like that. So it meant changing the PLs. It meant giving the leaders of those organizations more autonomy and more empowerment to run their businesses the way that they needed to do, even if that was a little more different from each other, right? So in the old way of doing it, we might have said, one way we're going to do manufacturing for the whole company. No, now each category can have the ability to make more decisions, right? So we changed the compensation system uh, to say you get rewarded by your more on your category results in addition to company results. We changed the um, role description of the function leaders versus the line leaders. Um, we built in a culture more oriented around growth mindset. Um, that's, you know, hey, we need, we can take more risks. We um, managing the portfolio differently. So is that helping answer your question a little bit? Yes, it is. I, I, I want to keep going if that's all right. So, so yeah, as I look at your, your <laughs> I'm like, account, I might be talking too much and making it boring. So it's no, no. So as I look about. at your LinkedIn account, right, you were at one point the director of HR for Global Fabric Care, and 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 then okay. later you were uh, VP for HR for North America. Yep. So could you talk about right? I I I think that's some of the difference you're describing there in terms of the organizational structure of the category versus the the continent. Yeah. So, so in our old way of doing it, most of the orientation of an employee actually would have come, I would say, first through their function. So in your wife's case, for example, through market research or kind of brand management, or somebody else might have been through, like she was early in her career through research and development, that would have been the primary way that they thought about who am I trying to please, right? For lack of a better thing, I'm trying to please my research and development boss. Or I'm going to have a primary orientation to, toward brand building. What we, and then they would also think about the country that I'm in. And these are especially the, the um, 
customers that we serve. So for example, pick a big one in the Midwest, Kroger is a customer that our our salespeople would sell to. And in the old way of doing it, they would have sold all of the products to the the buyers at Kroger um, and really tried to get that benefit of scale. When we switched the strategy to say category orientation is first, what we would want is for an employee like your wife would have been to be like, I work in fabric care. I happen to be a market research person and I my job is for the United States, but really changing the orientation of how you how you think about that. And that doesn't mean that the the roles in the countries, for example, aren't important. I mean, you talked about selling to Amazon. Um, that is, you know, largely a US sales team that works on selling to Amazon. It's just that they would think first about what's the product category that they're selling and then benefit from the company scale. Thank you, very helpful. So you stepped into this chief human resources officer role, CHRO, about four years ago, is that right? Yeah, almost five. Almost five. What are some of the the challenges you experienced transitioning into that role? (laughs) That's a great question. None, right? Because you already knew everything. Yeah, none. No, it's super easy. <laughs> Actually, there were some things that were that were easy and other things that I think maybe surprised me a little bit about how hard they work. Um, I mean, I had worked there at that point for almost 30 years. So I had the benefit of knowing the industry, knowing the people, knowing the teams and the other executives and having a lot of really deep relationships. So that was super helpful. I think the thing that was kind of surprising for me was I felt this like really, really large sense of responsibility, right? And it wasn't helped because people kept saying, wow, did you know you're responsible for a hundred thousand human beings and all of their families? (laughs) I'd say, thank you. That's great. (laughs) Um, But it does come with this really strong feeling of responsibility. And I think at first I went through a thankfully reasonably short phase where um, I felt like singularly accountable, right? And of course you are in a way when you're in the C-suite role, there's nobody above you in human resources for the company. A lot of things come to you. Um, But when I sort of relaxed into, no, this isn't different from how it's always been. There's an executive team that cares deeply about each other and how can we be successful. There's a board of directors who largely has your back. There's a whole team of human resources, vice presidents around the world and in the categories that I've worked with through my whole career who want us to be successful together. So when I stopped like worrying about so much about being singularly accountable and just thinking about what is my unique role in the team and how can I how can I help? And I think it just got a lot easier and a lot more fun. So you just retired. Can you tell us a little bit about that decision? <laughs> what, how, did you, how did you come to that decision? And what are you going to do in the next phase of life? Yeah, sure. So, so I was at P&G for 34 years. I started there when I was 21. And I had graduated from UD one week prior. 
I did allow myself a week because I wanted to make sure that I got to go to Dayton to Daytona of course. before before I started. Um, so, so that was the place where I, you know, had my business career and where I, um, where I, you know, raised my family and sort of grew up. Um, and 34 years is a long time um, to work at one place. And I feel incredibly, incredibly fortunate that I was able to, the first place I found was a place that worked so well for me. Um, but PNG has a really great um, opportunity that allows you to retire when you're 55 with uh, health care, which of course is important to all of us. Um, and you can, you know, sort of keep your equity and there's a, a good like little retirement package. And so there's this sort of feeling that you have, like it's possible to leave when you're 55. Um, and so that was something that I had always um, kind of had in the back of my mind that I wanted to do. Um, you know, I have a big family and other interests. And I also think that sometimes it's time for the next generation, right? Like I was so fortunate to have my turn, my opportunity to do that role. And now somebody else is having the opportunity to do that role. So I was a combination of because I can, um, because there's other things that I want to do and just uh, good fortune, I think that came with it. I'm uh, young enough and healthy enough now, as is my husband, that we can kind of enjoy ourselves. So to the second part of your question, what am I going to do next? Um, some uh, investment in myself, of course, working on a little bit of the habits that you maybe aren't the best at when you're working full time and traveling a lot. So, um, you know, learning to play golf, learning to play tennis, taking some Pilates lessons. So some good stuff like that. Um, I'm particularly interested in getting involved in an area that um, I've always felt sort of strongly about, which is related to somewhat around first-generation college students. Um, I love the program that UD has around Flyer Promise. Um, I, I think that's really powerful. Helping kids, especially kind of, you know, high school, late teenage kids, see what possibilities there are um, for them from a career standpoint. Um, I know when I was growing up, you know, it was a more blue collar background. I didn't know what a career in business was. You could have told me about brand or R&D or, you know, supply chain. Those words were meaningless to me, right? So I think um, helping young people find their path, um, whether that's some like hands-on work or um, I'm exploring some work with some, you know, nonprofits that do work in this area as well. So hopefully uh, spend a little time there. And then uh, lots more traveling between my husband and I. We have six kids and they're scattered all over the U.S. and one grandson. Um, so just the opportunity to travel more and spend some more time with friends and family is very welcome. I have a feeling wherever that grandson is located might be the most uh, frequent destination. <laughs> he is pretty cute, I'll say. <laughs> You mentioned Flyer Promise, and and so th that's a, a phenomenal program for for those of you that that don't know. Flyer Flyer Promise is a, a program we have at UD where we're bringing in first generation students uh, whose whose families wouldn't traditionally be able to afford UD 
and and providing them the the opportunity to to come here. I, I think we're on. I might have gotten lost. Maybe the fifth cohort will be coming in this fall, um, fourth or fifth, and the the very first cohort. We bring in about 40 students each year in a cohorted program, and the first cohort, uh, something like 39 out of 40 graduated from UD, which is is pretty phenomenal retention rate in general and a really special retention rate uh, given the population of students. Um, And and so there are extra resources. And I think in four years, if I might just interject another positive. Yes, 39 out of 40 in four years. It's unbelievable. Uh, and, and we're seeing similar numbers uh, from each successive cohort, uh, not quite that high, but, but you know, higher than our, than our traditional um, retention rate or our t- tr- traditional graduation rate. So uh, this yeah. Thursday, I go to a graduation party for our, the, the, the graduating seniors coming out of Flight of Promise. And then next Tuesday, I go to a welcome party for the next cohort he'll be incoming first year students in the fall. So um, sort of top of mind for me because of, of the interactions we're going to have, but it's a, a really awesome program. It's great work that you're doing. I mean, the idea of being able to provide the opportunity and then surround with the whole ecosystem of support um, and community is just really powerful. So anyway, tell the, tell the graduating class. I said, well done. I will. I will. And we, we've also got a program the UD Sinclair Academy. Uh, I'm not sure everybody knows about that. Sinclair is the local community college here in Dayton. And we have a, a program with, with Sinclair where students can go spend two years at Sinclair, come to UD, spend two years at UD and, and graduate in four years. And, and when they start at Sinclair, they're immediately given a UD student ID. So they're, they're considered a, a UD student from the day they start. So they can talk to our academic advisors. They can talk to our career advisors. They can use our, our recreational facilities they can participate in intramural sports. Uh, and we were just recently awarded a, a national grant uh, to, to expand that program um, because we, it was recognized that, that the, the quality was really high. And, and it, it's, it's not the same as Flyer Promise, but uh, it, it's similarly helping uh, students that wouldn't have traditionally uh, been able to afford a UD education. That's terrific. So talking about UD, let's go back to, to your, your college days. What attracted you to the University of Dayton? Um, my sister. <laughs> so <laughs> I think, uh, you know, in the day when, when I went to college, it wasn't so much of a process as it is now, or at least it wasn't so much of a process for me. Um, I, uh, my, my sister went to UD. I came to visit for a Sibs weekend, and that was pretty much all she wrote. I thought it was great. I loved her friends. I loved the campus. Um, you know, we were very different in some ways. She was a chemistry major. Um, I would never have picked science as a major, um, but I loved the welcoming feel of it. Um, and so I applied, I think, you know, only to a couple of schools. I won't, I won't name the others, but as soon as I got the acceptance and, uh, UD came through with a good, a good scholarship, um, that really helped make it possible. Um, I was, I was hooked. Where, where did you grow up? Where were you coming to UD from? Cincinnati. Okay. So just down the road. Yep. So you, you graduated in 1989. You were, I know you were just, just back on campus this fall. What are the, the new additions to campus that you find appealing? And, and what, do you, what do you miss about the, the old campus? Oh, gosh. Well, there's much more 
wonderful new stuff than things you would miss about the about the old campus. I mean, I'm just so impressed with the changes that have been made. I mean, it, it struck me really. Um, I, I, I would say it's like a physical thing, but it's also probably symbolic. Like it feels like the university is like turning itself outward. I don't I don't know if this makes sense to you, but when I went to school there, it felt like there was like in the center of campus, there were these tennis courts. I don't know if you remember that there were tennis courts, like right in front of Founders Hall. Okay. And the whole campus just sort of was like in a circle of buildings around that. And it, you know, so it sort of just like felt like a closed in circle. When I came back the last time and the last couple of times I've been back, it just feels like, boy, you just get off the highway and it starts sooner. And the, the student neighborhood is like, revived and it it just feels like more integrated with the whole city and more like it has a very physical outward facing feel um while still having a great sense of community so um that's been really impressive and then of course the the people are the same honestly um i uh i i, I really just feel that same sort of collaboration and camaraderie and overall feeling of happiness and uh, gratefulness that I think is just part of the UDS. And so that part doesn't feel different at all. Um, certainly the opportunities for programs, technology integration, all like so much, uh, so exciting to see the, the changes there. I really like the way you described the campus as outward facing. I've I don't know that I've heard anybody say it that way, but I immediately nodded with you as you were saying it. And I, I think there's definitely an attempt and, and some action on the university's part to embrace its relationship with the city of Dayton in, in a way, I, I'm sure it's always been there a little bit, but in a, in a more intentional way. And I think one of the, one of the ways that's visible is our presence downtown, the hub, the old Dayton Arcade, where, you know, we've kind of planted a flag in the middle of the city and said, you know, here, here we are, where we want to be a part of this. We want to help the entrepreneurial ecosystem here in this, in the city. But I, uh, it's definitely also present when you look at the way the campus has, has grown and, and honestly filled a little bit of a void as some of the larger companies have left Dayton and the university has taken a more active role in, in the life of, of the city. So uh, thank you for, for saying it that way. I, I like it a lot. So many of our alumni, you mentioned the student neighborhood, many of our alumni identify with a, a house or a street on campus. Is there a specific house, a street or, or a dorm that, that you think about when you think back to your, your days here at UD? Well, I spent two years in Marycrest, so for sure that, but I think the, the, the place that, that, captured my heart is Stone Mill. Um, I lived on Stone Mill um, my junior year and I stayed for the summer between junior and senior year. And I was, I had an internship at one of the banks downtown. It was Society Bank then. I'm sure it's been bought by other banks by now. Multiple times. Um, <laughs> but, I, but I took the bus to work. And so I would walk down to the corner of Stone Mill and Brown Street. And on the way home, I would I would walk back up the street and it was summer so it was hot and there was no 
air conditioning in our houses at that time. I don't know. Maybe they, maybe the students have air conditioning now. If but you're a prospective not. student listening to this, I promise you we have air conditioning in all the houses. <laughs> okay. Well, the lack of air conditioning made a happy thing happen in my life, which is every day I would walk back and there was this house that had this group of boys and they would always be on the front porch with the fans blowing because it was hot. And one day they were like, hey, do you want a beer? And I said, sure, because you could. And it was so welcoming. And I stopped at their house on my way home from work. And i uh, that's where I met my husband. Oh, wow. That's awesome. Sitting on the porch of that house on Stone Mill. So, yeah. I have a feeling that's not a uncommon story amongst no, I don't think so. UD students. I, I love true. hearing the the first time you met stories from what, what's what's the phrase UD wed to wed I think is is what uh, UD typically refers to when alumni marry each other. Um, but there's there's an alum that met that I, that I met recently that met his wife in line for registration their first year at UD. And I thought, oh, wow, that's, that's so great! I still walk every Saturday with a friend of mine from UD that I met on the very first day of class. And now she lives about a mile from me and we meet halfway in between with our dogs and do our Saturday morning walks. So that's awesome. So there's lots of those. So if you had one meal on or near campus, where would you eat? Oh yeah. Milano's for sure. <laughs> that's an easy one. It would be a turkey sub. They, uh, they owe me money because that, that is the, the most frequent answer for sure. This podcast is basically a commercial for Milano's. Yeah. Well, there is a Milano's in Cincinnati now, but it's pretty far for me. And I went there once and it wasn't the same. So I'm specifically giving my endorsement <laughs> to the Dayton Milano. Milano's on Brown Street. Yeah. Do you have any good stories from your time at UD other than the one you just you just shared with us uh, that you would be willing to share with the public audience? <laughs> I think that's a better question to ask my UD friends. Um <laughs> I mean, I, I started to allude to this before, but one of the things that I really liked about being at Dayton was that both my sisters were there. Um, and my my older sister was a year ahead of me in school. And I felt like when I got there, she just, her friend group welcomed me and um, it was easy to, you know, be a part of things. And then you know, she sort of knows all of my friends from Dayton. And then a couple of years later, my younger sister came and I really enjoyed like, oh, no, I'm the big sister and I get to show the ropes. And, um, you know, so, you know, even now as we're all older and grown, I think it's really cool that we have that sort of shared experience and uh, know each other's friends and understand, you know what that time in our lives was like. So I think that's kind of fun. I, I know really there's a lot of, uh, a lot of siblings and a lot of kids. Um, a lot of my, my UD friends have kids that are going there now. And I'm kind of jealous that I never got to go to the parents weekend. <laughs> uh, parents weekend can get rowdy and, and it's not <laughs> the students, it's the parents who are the ones getting yeah. rowdy. So um, yeah, I'm, I'm glad you didn't come and get in trouble at parents weekend. Yeah, me too. <laughs> are there are there any courses or professors that that you remember that sort of impacted your life later on? Yeah, 
I mean, I, I guess I would say two that that had pretty strong influences. One is I was in the honors program um, when I was there and we, it was a cohort like you were talking about with Flyer Promise and there were probably 30 of us um, in the, that's the way they did the honors program at that time. I think it's a little bit different format now, but we went through um, the program together for all four years and each year we would take one class together. And it was, you know, usually some sort of elective thing because it had to apply to all of the different majors. But one year we took this interdisciplinary course on systems thinking. And this professor, I think his name was was Mott, um, if I remember correctly, he was an engineering professor. I was in the school of business, so I wouldn't normally have run across him. And it was just the first time that I'd ever done something that was like very multidisciplinary, very integrated thinking, where it was like, here's the problem that you need to solve. Um, ironically, ours was on education and educational opportunities for underserved children. Um, in you got that in your head and, early, huh? Yeah. And we had to come <laughs> together, um, the engineers and the pre-med students and the communications majors and the business majors. And we divided into teams and we worked on solving the problem. And he taught us a methodology with which to do that. And it was a systems thinking methodology. And that methodology combined with how do you lead a team? I got to lead one of the sub teams. How do you lead a team? How do you break a problem down into parts? How do you collaborate? I mean, it really lessons that I used really throughout my whole career. So that one for sure, I think was, was really helpful. Um, and then just from a professor standpoint, I remember Dr. Donnelly was, uh, I think he was a sociology professor, um, but he just took a real interest in me. And I think he's the one who uh, gave me a good reco at PNG. So, so that was good. That Pat Donnelly? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Pat was uh, associate provost when I when I got to UD, so I, I got to know Pat, and I actually had his son as a student of mine in the MBA program. Oh wow! Okay, well, if uh, if you happen to still be in touch with him, pass along my best, please. I will. I will. Okay. So you, you talked about leading a team and going through this systems thinking while you're while you're a student. Did that lead to, or were you already thinking about what your career would would look like when you when you graduated? You know, I would be giving myself too much credit if I was <laughs> <laughs> that that well planned. Um, so no, it, it wasn't it wasn't like some lightning bolt struck, and I was like, oh, I'm going to do this. But I do think that there were formative things that happened at Dayton that helped me understand when sort of this HR organization career path came in front of me that that would be a good thing for me, right? So like, I remember loving that systems class and I really liked both macroeconomics and microeconomics. And I really liked sociology and I liked psych psychology. And so I think, you know, when you think about like what's in common across all of those things, this idea of like, how does the small interact with the big, right? How does the individual employee interact with the system of a company? 
I, I could never have articulated that to you then, but as those opportunities came, I'm like, yes, that appeals to me. I like that. And then I just kept following further and further down that path. So what, what was your first job? I know you already said you started at PNG. What was your first job and what were your expectations that your career would look like? You sort of going into that first role. I was the assistant office manager at the Chicago sales office for PNG. So um, at that time, there were probably about 700 salespeople that worked out of the sales office in Chicago. Um, Honestly, really, they mostly worked out of their cars because they used to drive around and call on stores and sell our products. Um, But there were, you know, the kind of infrastructure was in the office. And so I did things like um, hiring people and some training and uh, to like, we had these daily order and shipment reports and we, we used to say we would pull them down in the morning that literally from the mainframe, like pulling the reports off the big printer. <laughs> it's like a little bit of IT. Um, I bought the company cars and negotiated the office lease. So it was just kind of like a cross between an office manager and an HR person. Um, that was my first job. And I was the assistant office manager. And I thought that if I could ever be an office manager that that would be the end all that would be really awesome and I had gone through this whole process of like looking around the country at where there were office manager jobs figuring out who might retire so that someday I could get there (laughs) so honestly I don't think I really had like I certainly wasn't thinking about you know moving up and taking on more responsibility and eventually leading the HR organization for the company when I started. So I, I'm, I have to assume, given where you ended up, that you, you did get an office manager job. I did. I did eventually <laughs> get it. I, my first one was in Atlanta. Yes, that was fun. But I was only about 25. So then I realized that I was going to have to make a, a plan after that one. <laughs> you peaked too early. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So. Maybe give us just a little general overview of, of I don't know, memorable roles that you had as, as it looked like you moved around a little bit through the country in, in your in your career. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> well, I kind of, um, I mean, I, I can describe some of the memorable roles, but before I do that individually, I mean, I think I just sort of, what I remember about each role is what did I learn in that role? Like, um, what was the sort of skill set? So in, in that first one, I learned about like, I better have attention to detail. My first boss had very high standards and, you know, there was a certain way of operating and a level of accountability and professionalism that was demanded. That was great. I learned that very early on and I carried that with me always. Um, in other jobs, I learned how to work with more senior executives or how to work with, um, you know, outside of P&G partners or, you know, my first time working really with a global organization and how do you really work with a team that's much more diverse than you. So I think um, I, what I re- tend to remember about the jobs is what did, I, what did I really learn, like the building blocks that eventually enabled me to, to have bigger and bigger roles. Um, one that was particularly exciting, I, I got the opportunity to sort of be the HR person who coordinated the Gillette integration. Um, 
and and that was that was really rewarding um one it was a little humbling i think to see two big companies try to come together and you know see the both what's possible and some of the sort of human trauma that is created in the process of that it really taught me a lot about culture um, but I learned a ton about HR because it was everything from how are we going to integrate the benefits policies in Japan to, you know, how are we going to bring these two organizations together and how are we going to do staffing to what's the pension in Belgium um, and what are we going to do when the titles don't match and, you know, all this really sort of interesting uh, stuff about HR. So that was that how was long did that take? That. that sounds like such a tedious process to merge all those different things from two different organizations tedious is not a very exciting word i'm sorry i apologize <laughs> it took about 18 months i would say from from when i think we knew that you know the bid had been made to when we closed um the deal and then i would say you know another year or two to get through all of the cultural um kind of integration and um you know out all the portfolio stuff so multiple years and we certainly didn't do everything right was there a time i'm assuming after the gillette role that you looked around and thought i think i could make it to the c-suite and, and i want to do it it happens um a little more slowly. It actually was during the Gillette role that the, the first time I remember the, the guy who was the chief HR officer at Gillette was the first person who ever said, I think you could have my job, meaning the chief job. And honestly, it, it honestly hadn't occurred to me then. Um, but I would have been way too scared and uncertain about that then. And, and I wouldn't have been competent either. Um, so I would say it was more of a gradual with each role I had, I I really loved learning and growing. And then it was fun to feel like you were having an impact. And then all of a sudden you're having an impact on the global fabric care business. And at the time that was like 4,000 employees and $16 billion. And I was like, wow, it's fun to have an impact at that scale. And then you start to see like, oh, if I had the next job, I could have impacted an even bigger scale. I could learn even more. Um, and the kinds of people that you get to work with and um, the experiences. So it was much more of a step-by-step -step, um, looking up to the next one sort of process for me. I know it's very different for other people. Maybe that's just like been their dream forever. I, you know, I, I ask some similar questions on this podcast and I, I get very different answers. So uh, yeah, some people have said when I graduated college, I wanted to be a chief executive, right? And, you know, Others say I would no no chance I was dreaming that big when I was coming out of college. So it, it it definitely varies. I think for a lot of people, there was a situation like you described where somebody higher up sort of gave them that I think you could do this, and and that sort of changes the mindset and gives you makes you dream a little bigger than maybe you would have if if they hadn't shared that with you. So um, yeah, and I, I don't mean to over generalize on the gender point at all, but I, I think. You know, I'll just speak for myself as a female leader. It took me a while to reconcile ambition with femininity. 
and that those could go hand in hand and that, you know, I could be the same person and it wasn't, there wasn't something wrong with being ambitious, that that was, that was not a dirty word. Um, so different journeys for different people, I guess. Absolutely. Absolutely. What recommendations would you give to, to current students or, or young alumni as they're, as they're starting out their career? Well, um, I mean, I would go back to this point of what are you interested in? Um, you know, sometimes we have to be practical. But if you have a choice to do something that is interesting to you, that you feel you're good at, um, that's my advice. I know a lot of people talk about passion. You got to be passionate. And um, I always, I, I found that an overwhelming word when I was young. I, I don't know what I'm passionate about. And I certainly don't know how to take something I'm passionate about and turn it into a career. But if you just think about like, okay, I guess I'm pretty good at organizing things. Like, can I do something where I get to organize things, right? Or I'm pretty good at collaborating with people. Is there something I can do where that skill is going to be useful? Um, so, you know, just sort of taking it in chunks like that is one. And then another bit of advice I would give is maybe three things. The second one would be, don't be too time oriented, right? I think it's so much like, well, I'm going to do this for two years and then I'm going to do that for two years. Like, just think about each opportunity as what, what am I going to get from this? What can I learn? How am I going to grow? And I really think you should be thinking about what are you going to give as well, right? Because if you're only thinking about what am I getting from this job and have I gotten everything I'm going to get and then I'm going to move on, I think you miss out on the joy of contributing to something and that really sense of accomplishment of being part of winning and how are you going to add value, right? So I would just encourage you to think about how much value can I add and what can I learn? And then, you know, let time become secondary to to that versus the primary driver. I love that. I, I think a lot of a lot of young people have a that that do have an ambition that that get stuck on. I got to do this this fast, right? Yeah. And, and it's more than one way to get from here to anywhere. Well, and sometimes if you skip the steps, you're not as qualified, and then you struggle when you get to that role. Right. Were there any career changes that you took that? weren't sort of climbing, but were, gosh, I, I'm, I'm missing this skill. Let me move over here and, and, and add, add a, you know, piece to my repertoire. Yeah. I mean, there was some of that. I mean, maybe one thing I just comment on would be like, cause you mentioned earlier that I moved around a lot. Um, I think it's important to know when to say yes to an opportunity to learn something new and get a new experience. Um, and when, when it's better to say no to that. So for me personally, being able to manage my personal life and my professional life together was really important. And I wouldn't have wanted to stay at a company or progress if I felt like the personal trade-offs were going to be too high. So, you know, one time I remember being offered a job in London, sounds very exciting. I was like, talked it over with my husband I'm like I'm not going to London my mom was in poor health the kids were little um and so we didn't do that um you know my husband that I met at UD had a career as well 
Um, so we had to manage when do we move that it makes sense for both of us. Um, and then unfortunately he, my, my husband died suddenly about 12 years ago. Um, and I, again, had to really rethink like, okay, well, what can I do now? I have three kids that, you know, so, so I did take a sidestep then I took a different job that didn't require any travel. Um, and where I would have more control over my time. If you looked at it on a career map, you would have said that was a, a sidestep. It didn't turn out to be that way at all. I was willing for it to be, but it ended up being a great accelerator and um, great opportunity as well. Um, I'm married again now. I have, you know, six kids all together now. Um, and I just think it's 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 important to remember that our careers are not in isolation from our lives. My wife, we met and she was, I can't remember the exact role, but she was offered a role. I, I think it was in Nash. She was going to have to move to Nashville and we'd only been dating. I, I don't remember the exact amount. It was like, we'd been dating six months, nine months, something like that. And it was a role she had applied for kind of before she met me or, or you know, and, and I can remember that was a big conversation. Like, Hey, are you worth me sticking around for? Because <laughs> This is a move that I really wanted, you know, before I met you. And I'm, I'm really excited that I was offered the role, but I'm kind of intrigued by where this might go. So were you worth it? I, I hoped, I hope she would say yes. I mean, we're still <laughs> together. So um, at least, sure at least I didn't, it. I didn't ruin it uh, so far. That's great. Yeah. Tracy, I really appreciate your time today. I've had a a really great time listening to your your story uh, and, your, and your career. Is there anything else you'd like to share with our listeners or, or any questions you have for me? Well, the only other thing I would share is surround yourself with good people, with good values. Um, you know, there can be a lot of hard things in life and, and even in your career. Uh, but when you have a team of people around you that have great values and that you trust, uh, then it all works out fine. Um, what a question. Yeah. Okay. Well, tell me something that you're, uh, that you're proud of that you and your team have accomplished like in the last year or something. That's an easy one. Uh, oh, good. Yeah. It's, it's a good, good, good time to, for that question. So we, uh, the, the faculty in the school of business just voted to approve 14 changes to the undergraduate core curriculum in the, in the school of business. And, it's uh, something we've been process started over two years ago. We had a, a, a task force, a small group of faculty look at the curriculum and, and suggest some, some changes and then had a lot of conversations uh, surrounding that. There, there was some you know, initial concern about some of the, some of the changes from, from some of our faculty. And so we did a lot of a lot of talking, we call them open forums where, you know, anybody can come and, and we'll just sort of have an open conversation about the changes. Um, we did a lot more, you know, the, the task force had done a lot of background work. Um, they'd talked to uh, members of the business advisory council. They had conversations with graduating students. They had conversations with younger alumni. You know, what are the things that are happening in the business world that, that we need to make sure are incorporated in our curriculum today? And there's some areas where we weren't current and uh, faculty, you know, not everybody was excited about it. It was going to require change. It was going to require them to teach different things in different ways. 
Um, but over the, the two years, which sounds like a really long time, uh, particularly I'm, I'm sure in, in, a, in a corporate world where, where things are moving quicker for us, um, the, so that then we had 14, these 14 changes. And so we kind of, there's a lot of debate uh, amongst faculty as to how we should vote on that. And it was decided to, to separate them all out um, because people didn't want to vote on the whole package because everybody had different things they liked and didn't like. So it turned out that of the 14, I think 10 of them were approved with over 90% approval and the, the lowest approval we got was 70%. And so that there was really strong support from the faculty, which we couldn't always tell in the conversations because the people that, that had concerns were sometimes the loudest people in the room. Um, so it, it, it took a while, but it's, it's a bunch of changes. I can't tell you all of them right now, but I'll tell you one of them that I'm, that I'm really excited about is what we call the career flight plan. So you talked about sort of finding, finding something that you like or something that you're good at. Uh, so the career flight plan is a series of, of three one credit hour courses. First one's in, in your first year as, as a student, and it's first year is about vocational discernment, right? What, what, what do you want to do? What, what are your interests? What are your passions? And then how do you plan out your, your four years at UD so that you're ready to, to excel in that, in that career? Second year, how do you find an internship? What's a, what's a resume supposed to look like? What's a LinkedIn profile look like? Kind of getting you ready to go find and, and land that, that first internship. And then the third year, it's more about your, your first job. How do, you, how do you negotiate your starting salary? How do you differentiate between a job that pays you a lot but doesn't have any benefits versus a job that doesn't pay as much but gives you healthcare and retirement benefits? So setting you up for, for life. So uh, I think those are some very practical, tangible things that a, a lot of prospective students are, are interested in, their parents are interested in, and I'm, I'm really happy that we're going to be able to deliver on that for the, the first-year students that start in the fall of 23. That's so cool. I mean, what a great example of change management, right? Like you set this vision, but then it's like all the building blocks and working through the emotion and getting granular and putting the systems in place. That's really well done. Congratulations. Well, thank you. Thank you. I was talking to another local business leader a couple of weeks ago, and he talked about the challenge, uh, as he as he put it, pace versus patience. Uh, and, and <laughs> well said. Yeah, I, I loved it. It, it's, it. it immediately resonated with me. And, and we were sort of juggling that here with this with this change. And, you know, we certainly there's people on my team saying we're not moving fast enough and, and other people saying we're not moving slow enough. And you know, I don't know if we, we did it the right way, but we, we ended up at a, at a pretty good spot. Well, that's great. I can't wait to see it play out. <laughs> me too. Me too. Well, Tracy, thanks again for taking time to chat with me today. I uh, look forward to seeing you on campus again soon. Thank you. Thanks so much. And go Flyers. And th thanks to our listeners. I hope you all join us again on the next episode of the Business Class Podcast. Go Flyers. Thanks for joining us for the Business Class Podcast. If you'd like to engage with us further, please follow us on social media. Our Instagram and Facebook accounts all use the name SBA. You can also email the Dean's Office with questions or suggestions for future podcasts at sbadean at udayton.edu. No matter where you are on your career path, we are proud that you're part of our Dayton Flyer family.